Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. What is it? New York, New York. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. Well, everybody's a part now of This Week in Common Sense, starring you, Paul Jacob. And uh, this is for the second week of February, 2020. You're referencing a New York, New York song, but I don't think you have New York primarily on your mind. No, it's, uh, it, it came to mind because you think of New York, and it is kind of true from a business sense. You know, it's the, it's the heartbeat of the global economy or something. It's just always, I've always liked New York. And that, that, uh, but it's about business and finance. Uh, when you think of government, you think of Washington, D.C., and this week, I, on Thursday, did a uh, piece called Capital Jack. And I was talking about Jack Evans. Jack Evans is running for the city council. And you might ask, Paul, what seat is he running for on the city council? And I would have to tell you that the seat he's running for is known as his own seat, Ward 2 which until January, he had held that seat for three decades, 29 years to be precise. And in January, he resigned. Well, why did he resign? He resigned because the council had just uh, had a report given to them that they approved that said this guy is, you know, basically selling his office in every way, shape, and form. Had a consulting business, and in essence, you hired him as a lobbyist to lobby himself and the rest of the council. Pretty ugly business. The FBI has raided his home. He's still facing uh, charges, possibly from the uh, at the federal level, uh, which in Washington D.C. The, the corruption sometimes you need the feds because it just seems to permeate uh, the city. Uh, and, and it's not the only one in America, unfortunately. But interestingly enough, he, he, uh, the council in past times has had, you know, three or four people under some sort of investigation. But this time they basically all united against this guy has got to go. And before they were ready to expel him, he decided, you know what, I, I'm going to resign. And of course, this was just months after uh, he was the chairman of the Washington, let's see if I can get this right, Washington Metro Area Transit Authority, Metropolitan Area, uh, known as Metro, and which has just been a horrendous failure for years. It was uh, beautifully built, not maintained. Uh, you know, if it were private and they feared accidents and people being killed on the rails and so on, I think they would have maintained it instead. It's public. They didn't. It's a complete bureaucracy and a mess. And of course, why, why wouldn't it be a mess when you've got the, the most crooked guy in, in Washington, Capitol Jack, uh, you know, they're uh, running the show. Well, they got uh, an investigation, found all the different things he was doing, pushed him off that, that uh, particular board. So this guy is, is just, you know, bad news. Finally, it all catches up to him after three decades of wheeling and dealing in the nation's capital city. And then literally three, four weeks later, he's announcing, I'm, I'm running for my own seat, which they're holding an election for. 
an election that is estimated to cost a cool million dollars. Now, he may not win this seat, but that's not a foregone conclusion. And it and and that's just you know, just boggles the mind. And then the other thing about this, I think, is that it it is a sign, even though he's miscalculated here, finally, his miscalculation has caught up with him, um, or someone else calculated in some way to catch this guy. But for three decades, he's been in power. Uh, the voters of the city passed term limits, but they have a process that the legis that the city council can just veto. And that's exactly what they did before it affected anybody. So this problem wouldn't exist had the term limits initiative that the people of the city in an election, it's an interesting election, a little diversion. In 1994, Mayor Barry, who had was called mayor for life until an old girlfriend uh, got him to come to her hotel room and smoke some crack with her. I think he was... I think he was looking for something else, but uh, but anyway, he smoked crack. The feds had it on tape. He went down, um, and and went to prison, and then got off, got onto the city council again, and this time he was running for mayor. So he's running for mayor, and I suggested his slogan should have been "Give Mayor Barry or Give Barry another crack," uh, meaning another crack at mayor, not crack in terms of crack cocaine. I hope everyone would have gotten that had he decided to use that slogan <laughs> and paid me royalties. But he won the election, but it was a completely racially polarized election across the city. He won big in every black ward. He lost big in every white ward. Uh, so completely a, a you know, racially determined election, arguably. At the same time, term limits wins better than 60-40. I think it was 64% is I think what we ended up with. Uh, so 64-36, almost two to one in, in the belly of the beast and across every ward. No racial aspect to it whatsoever. Just a huge majority in every single ward of the city. In fact, it was remarked that, that uh, you know, while it was so split on the one on the term limits measure, you know, unanimity uh, just about throughout the city. So that's uh, that's how we get Captain Jacks. And um, and boy, uh, I think politicians around the country sure think oftentimes. I mean, what can I get away with? We we ought to we ought to draw that line for them. Something's odd about people who uh, about, they'd like to reelect guys that are already in there, even if they're bad guys. Well, you know, name recognition pay, plays a huge role in, you know, you, you may say, I don't like so-and-so, but are you going to vote for the guy that you don't know? I, I remember one election early on, I, I did not want to vote for Bill Clinton. I did not want to vote for the person uh, who Bill Clinton was running against because he had been governor and he had failed on basically every promise he had, he had made. This is back when I was 20-something. Uh, living in, in uh, uh, Arkansas. And I remember on the day of the election, um, and, and some people wouldn't, re wouldn't self-disclose because they might be embarrassed. I'm not. I'm proud. I made the right decision. But my brother, uh, who worked for the newspaper at the time there, told me, 
well, there's another candidate in the race. I said, really? I hadn't heard anything about another candidate. He said, yes, there's a guy. And, and I said, well, what do you know about him? He said, well, the other thing I know is that he chained himself to, a, to the Capitol at some point. And I thought, I, that's not much to go on. But hey, it put him head and shoulders above the other two. And I didn't, uh, I didn't prevail. Uh, but, but anyway, Bill Clinton took back his uh, governorship that he had lost. So it was an interesting election and uh, historical because he then won a few more times and, and ran for president. Right. So he sort of did it Grover Cleveland because he had a, he had a time away from the office. He did. He, he lost in, I believe, 1980 uh, in the, uh, I believe it was 80. Could have been 82. I think it was 1980, though, in the, uh, uh, in the Reagan big win. Uh, but it was, it was the sort of thing where he had raised taxes on cars, on getting your license, your license fees for your car. And it included any car, you know, uh, it didn't matter what the value of it was. You were paying like another $20, $30, uh, which I think had been basically double. And, um, and people were livid. And then he also, uh, Carter had brought uh, folks from the, the boat lift in Cuba into, uh, oh, I'm going to forget, Fort Chaffee, uh, outside of Fort Smith in Arkansas, uh, which is an interesting fort because it's also where there were internment camps for Japanese Americans uh, during World War II there. Uh, but there had been, they he, he took them from Carter and it was seen as a, you know, he's doing Carter a favor. He's a democratic governor. And then there were some riots and other things. And, and uh, all of a sudden that became a big issue and it was just enough to, to knock Clinton out. And then of course he came back two years later. Now Arkansas was a solidly democratic state there uh, at that point. You know, if you were Rockefeller, he came in and got a few terms uh, spending millions, um, and and you had you know you had occasionally a, another person, maybe a congressman, uh, but now of course Arkansas flipped and just seemed to flip overnight. Um, one of the last Southern states to do so, but now everything's Republican. Uh, nobody's going to win statewide who's not Republican, and it almost seems like the same people, different label, same people, uh, but it. It is a huge problem, as we've talked about on this uh, podcast uh, many times. Unified government, especially where there's not the fear of competition at the next election that you could lose your majority in the legislature, you could lose that governorship, is just the worst of all possible worlds. They, they don't please their own party members who usually want them to be a little stronger on what they campaign for. They get in office and they they run government for their own benefit. And then who's going to stop them? You're going to vote for the minority party that's not going to get in anyway. And and so much of the country is either just deep deep blue or deep deep red. So, you know, it it, it whoever's on that line in November is going to win. And almost everything meaningful is decided in the primary when the fewest number of people turn out to vote. So does that mean that the recall would be more effective way of getting rid of a scandal-ridden governor, for instance, than re-election campaigns? That, that is, the people would more likely at the time of a scandal to recall a, a, a governor than they would in the next election vote him out? I think it depends. People are very discerning about recalls, has been my experience. Uh, and I've been involved in a couple, and 
And, uh, and, and as I said, I think we talked about it because of the, you know, we had a script last week talking about uh, that maybe we need a recall process at the national level because impeachment doesn't seem to work too well. It's become completely, well, not become, it's always been a completely partisan exercise. So, uh, but I like recall. I think it's used not enough. Other kind of people who like the government a lot more say, oh, it's used too much, but uh, I don't think it is. And I think that, that when what you have, if what you have is a policy disagreement, and there's that disagreement in the public, then you know it hardly makes sense to relitigate the last election with a recall. And you almost always pay a very heavy price for doing it. There have been mayors who have been uh, who have won the recall election, getting 70, 80 percent of the vote. And there have been mayors who were recalled in Miami. I remember years ago. I believe it was 92 percent of the vote. Maybe it was 91. But when you're recalled and that recall vote is 91% get rid of this guy, thank goodness for a process like recall. You deserved it. You couldn't, you, you couldn't have been a knight in shining armor. You just really couldn't be. And, and so I think, I think we do want that for when people are behaving just terribly. And I think we don't want to use that when it's a policy disagreement that exists not just between the public. Look, if it's a policy disagreement, that exists between the elected official and the entirety, let's say 90% or 86.3% of the uh, body politic, well then you might recall on that. You might say, look, this is not your government. We didn't elect you to make every decision on your own you know, moral authority. And you might recall something like that. But if you're talking about a 55-45 issue and the party that, you know, the, the candidate who won is in there because he honestly campaigned on that issue and so on. You don't have any grounds for a recall. You have grounds to run a candidate and try to beat him next time at the election. And and you know, you could say, hey, Paul, what's the what, what's the rule? What are the parameters? And I don't think there's a. I don't think it works that way. But I do think that the public is excellent at doing the judgment on the fly parameters of saying no. We may like or not like this guy, but this recall is crap. Or saying, look, thank goodness someone, I'm busy, I work, I get kids, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Uh, you know, somebody, thank goodness, did a recall because I'm ready to vote for it. I, I worked on a recall years ago, I believe it was 2010, uh, the mayor of Omaha, Nebraska. And he had campaigned pretty much on a, on a platform, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a small government, low tax, responsibility, you know, Democrat. And he came in and he slapped a uh, soda tax and he was pushing other taxes and, and the business community just went apoplectic that, wait a second, this is not at all what we were expecting. And there were people, um, I went in and helped run the petition drive there were people who drove across town, didn't know where they could find someone, but knew where our office was, and drove 15, 20 minutes in traffic to get there to sign a petition. And people sign petitions usually because someone hands them a petition and says, would you please sign this? And they're nice if it sounds plausible, and oh, that's an issue that seems like we ought to vote on, then, then they sign. Um, 
but they don't tend to travel across town to sign. Even on issues that they really believe in, you know, again, we're busy. We've got other things to do. And, uh, and so when I saw that, I thought that was just, you know, amazing. He ended up winning the recall vote. It was very, very close. And, of course, his team mobilized people uh, heavily, and so did the, the other side. And it was like a 50.5 don't recall him to 49.5, you know, recall him. And he ended up getting defeated the next time. A lot of times a recall, if it's close and doesn't knock that candidate out, you do get to the next election and it's a little bit of a, you know, we didn't recall you, but if, you know, it was close because we weren't too thrilled with what you're doing. If the other side runs a candidate and, you know, in a lot of these mayoral things, it's not really as party-based. You're, you're going to have more competition. If it's a democratic city, you're going to have people you know, aggressively coming into the, uh, to the primary. So a lot of times it, it will be, it will truncate your political career. Um, and then of course there are other times where someone decides they're going to recall a, a mayor and people can, you know, decide to do something that doesn't make all the sense in the world. And, uh, and the mayor wins huge. And then it becomes a thing where in the next election, nobody wants to, nobody wants to run against this guy. He's just demonstrated that, you know, he's got a huge percentage of population, so. I don't know where we go from there. Uh, the other scripts this week don't have much to do with recall. <laughs> no, they sure don't. Um, but in terms of recall, the first script of the week was about the draft. And boy, I do recall <laughs> the draft uh, way back when as a, as a kid, and I mean a little kid in the 60s, and uh, I was born in 1960. Uh, Growing up and, you know, people were being drafted for Vietnam and, uh, and that ended before I was of draft age. My, I remember my older brothers uh, both kind of got the first steps of getting a thing saying you're supposed to go register and then, and then it ended. And, um, and then, of course, Jimmy Carter brought it back. And we've had a, a draft registration for uh, men turning 18 for what uh, began in 1980, so 40 years, 40 years. And it, it doesn't work as a, as a program if you, were a, if you loved the draft and just thought, oh, we need a draft all the time. We should be drafted nonstop for every, every job in the economy. We should only take it if we've been forced to by selective service system or something. You'd have to say, well, then we need a selective service system and a registration program that worked. This one doesn't. Uh, even the former director of Selective Service, when Jimmy Carter started the program, said, this is a counterproductive program. This, this program is not just not helpful. It's, it makes us think something might be happening. That's not. Uh, the, you know, people don't sign these lists. They say that 75% of the, of the people who are registered for the draft did it passively, meaning in many cases that they were at the DMV and someone said, oh, I can sign you up for the draft. And you say, okay, and they do it. You sign nothing, you do nothing. Uh, and then there are other cases where they are doing it automatically so that the person never knows that they were registered for the draft. In fact, they didn't register for the draft. They were registered. Um, 
and and you know some people are saying we should do that with voting i think i think that's too much to do with voting it's it's something altogether different to do it with registering for the draft but it's it, a few weeks ago when uh so was, we have this program i'm going to set up a little bit more we have this program it's dealt with men it's never really gotten a very high percentage of people registering they don't change their address it's a worthless list but they keep paying to have this little group there to hold a draft if you need one modern warfare we don't need millions of more people in uniform and if we did we should say hey we need you people would come forward we'd have to pay them so, you know, we couldn't just say, <clears throat> we're going to force you to do this, whether you like it or not. Uh, that's the way we should do it. And so we, we come to this program now, uh, 40 years after it started. When it started, Jimmy Carter said it should include men and women. So that went over like a lead balloon. The idea of drafting your daughters, you know, and this was at a time where the, the draft wasn't so far away, the Vietnam draft. So it was a little more real to people. And so they said, okay, no, we're just doing it for men. That was challenged on the basis of, uh, you know, this is discriminatory against men. But at the time, women were not permitted in combat units. There were, there was no woman in any combat unit and there was no intention that there was going to be. They were not permitted to try to be in any combat unit. Well, you fast forward to today, and women can be in any position, any combat uh, position, and women are in, in those positions. So uh, it's just not the same thing. There's a case now in court. Uh, in fact, I'm going to New Orleans to listen to the oral argument in this case. It's the National... Uh, uh, associate or national organization for men, kind of like the national organization for women, and they have challenged it on the basis that it's discriminatory toward men. My hope, and there's a commission that's going to report to Congress later in the month of March about what should happen with the program, but registration, there's two choices. Uh, the court's pretty clearly going to come down and say, you either have to expand this program to women and make it equitable in that way, uh, constitutionally, or you've got to get rid of it. We're going to strike it down as discriminatory. It's a little bit interesting because you're going to have some people who like the draft maybe, but they don't want women drafted. Well, if you like the draft, women are going to be drafted. Uh, and I think it's a horrible idea. I have three daughters. I think it's a horrible idea to draft any young woman. It's despicable. Equally despicable is to conscript any young man. And, and that's, the, that's the message that's got to go forth. And I think, um, I think there are a lot of people who oppose, who uh, almost everybody approves of equality, believes, I think, and, and there are going to be some people who think, you know, that women shouldn't be in combat. But I think most people believe women, if they want to be in combat, have every right to compete and, and to serve in those roles. That's my personal view. But conscription is a whole other thing. And this commission, all along, I've gone to several of their hearings, and all along they try to, in essence, conflate, and it's not just them, a lot of the media and others, when they talk about these issues, they conflate service, someone volunteering to serve their country in the military or in some other way. 
and maybe they get paid for that service, but they, they do it and they do it because they believe in it and they think it's a great job. You're paying to do something I like. That's wonderful. I think everybody likes it. Even if you don't necessarily like the program they're working for, you like the fact that someone's doing something they think is, is a good thing to do. I like people who follow their heart and not some other part of them. Uh, sometimes even their brain for people who are wicked. But this, this idea that we're going to conscript people and call that service, that's not service. That's called slavery. And you could have slavery toward some good end, but boy, the means don't ever get justified by the end because in life, you know, we have an end, sadly, but it's really all just means. And just generation after generation, it's means. And if we allow conscription, it's a huge mistake. Uh, the country has come to that conclusion, but we still have this stupid little agency, you know, that, that kind of maintains itself. And we have this registration program, and they continually talk, as does Mayor Pete. Uh, and we've done uh, uh, commentaries on, on the mayor's idea about uh, that we need to help social cohesion by conscripting young people. And he, at first he said, well, it could be mandatory, it could be voluntary, as if, you know, one you say mandatory, I say voluntary, you know, it's all tomato in the end. That is such BS to suggest as if it's not even, a, you know, it's a minor detail, whether you are going to give my kid a job or what you really meant was, I'm going to drag your kid out of your home by force. And if you try to stop me, I will imprison you or maybe kill you. Those are just different. It's different to say, hey, Paul, your daughter, boy, we think the world of her and we're offering her a position to work in our agency and our department and, and, boy, I think this is going to work out great. And we'll pay her X. Oh, that's great. What'd she say? Oh, she said yes. Well, isn't this wonderful? Or greetings, we're coming. And if you don't think that a year or two of your kid's life is really ours to decide what's going to happen. And, and look, nowadays, they're not going to say, oh, they all have to go into the military. Your slavery can be all kinds of different things. Choice in slavery, that's the new mantra. But it will be. You will waste your time over here, or we'll waste your time over here. And, and of course, the other idea is, well, even if it may be that these young people felt like it was wasting their time, and of course, they may not, because they may not be experienced enough to know how much you're wasting their time. But their parents know how much you're wasting your time, their time. And it's just this, this thought that, what jobs are they going to be doing? You're making up jobs. This isn't how the real world works. This isn't how you teach these kids anything except that, oh my goodness, our government is so screwed up. And you're doing it because I've heard social cohesion, which, you know, let's imprison them all. Let's just stick them all in the same big room for a month. That'll make them all together. 
Um, and, you know, this idea that somehow we need things like World War II or some major famine or some disaster, an asteroid has to hit the Earth so that we can all have our come by God moment. Let's just try to, let's try to move there in some different way than we have to take control of everything. The other, the other part of that, though, is they sometimes talk about the benefits that society will get. And you get this picture of some young, you know, bright college kid who cares. And there's a bunch of those. I'm not saying there's not because there's a whole millions of them. But we're going to get them and they're going to be so great when they're giving you your medication or they're bringing your food to you or, or changing the bedpan or sweeping the street or building a house in a depressed neighborhood. And the reality is government isn't good at any of those things. There's not going to be some huge increase in the benefits people are getting. This is, you know, it's, it's insane. Buttigieg, just to put a, a finish on this and move on while we're still alive. Um, but Buttigieg has moved off of the, ah, it could be mandatory. I could be taking your kid, you know, by force, or we could be offering him something. And it started to say, let's just, let's move from like 70,000 uh, AmeriCorps jobs to 250,000. Now, that's a sign that the response he's gotten from people is that they do recognize the difference between mandatory and voluntary. And of course, since in America we play with magic money, um, and it doesn't matter how much money we print up, we just print up whatever we need. You know, modern monetary theory plus the reality of what Congress and the president has done year after year after year, regardless of which parties where or when. But uh, you know, with, with with all of that, sure, let's do it. That will be the the response. But if you give them that, they'll be back, and they'll be back more and more that they need to shape these young people, and they need to shape them to teach them about history, to teach them to love their neighbors and so on. And I'm thinking, these are older people who've, who've learned none of these lessons because that's why we, we need something because none of those lessons apparently have been learned to their satisfaction. And, and for some of them, I think they're probably right. But it's also after 12 years of compulsory, and I say 12 because some places may not make man, uh, kindergarten mandatory, but increasingly that's the case. So it's more than 12, most places. But at least 12 years of mandatory schooling, teaching things like American history, and then right as they leave that, oh my goodness, the lack of any knowledge about our country requires us now to take two more years of their life, and not like school, not where it's just a little bit they're learning different things to get a job. No, we're putting you to work for us for two years because we think somehow that will teach you what America is all about. Well, in America, we don't force people to go to jobs they don't want to go to. Anyway, this we're gonna we're gonna hear more about this, and I think I think initially I think people are gonna say, you know, what's the big deal? We're not gonna have a draft. This is a bad idea that we should, as the great Barney Fife often said, nip in the bud, nip it in the bud.
our kids should not be taken and forced to do stupid stuff for a year or two, right in the middle of going from <clears throat> high school to work, high school to college, becoming full-fledged adults, and we're gonna we're gonna let Uncle Sam and Uncle Sam's a lot better than the real guys <laughs> who, who you know who don't dress quite as flashy but are a lot worse than Uncle Sam. We're gonna let them tell our kids, you know, just hey, you work for us now for a couple of years. This is insanity, and and it will never be dealt with that way by the media who love the whole concept of the government dictating and teaching us how to live together and so on. The experiment that is America was not an experiment in having government train everybody how to behave. It was an experiment in letting people live their own lives, pursue their own happiness, their own way. And it worked out to be a very peaceful society a very wealthy society, arguably maybe a more polite society at times, with huge mistakes, mostly made by allowing government to coerce people. Uh, you know, because sometimes it's like, well, wait, you know, America's not so wonderful. Yes, there are times that we decided freedom didn't matter, and we're scared, and we're going to do something completely insane, like inter the internment camps for Japanese. No causes for that other than Americans wanting to steal their property. I mean, just outrageous stuff. Slavery, you know, this slavery is the great sin of America because it was right there at the beginning and the government protected it. But slavery is what? It's the exact opposite of, of what they were saying the purpose of America is. Let's go with what they said the purpose was, which was freedom, because freedom for people, for all men who are created equal, doesn't get you to slavery. And so, so often it seems like, and I know I'm taking a big digression. These are why these things take so long. Uh, but I'm taking a digression because so often we want to, we're told because something terrible tyrannical happened that America's not so great, which, you know, depending on what you mean by that is absolutely true or completely false. But let's talk about what we really mean. America has not lived up to its freedom. America has been a place where people have dreamed about being free and people have gotten to be free and that's wonderful, but other people didn't get to be free. When someone today, you know, we don't have we don't have Jim Crow laws today. We don't have slavery today. But when a police officer who is just as likely to be black as white shoots somebody without any real cause as part of our, you know, we, we like to knock the doors down because we think someone's got drugs and gets shot and, and, and goes in and, and someone tries to defend themselves and is shot dead or doesn't do anything and is shot dead because they thought they were going for some gun, that person's freedom is taken away. That's not part of our system. That's a huge problem that we have to solve, and we ought to solve it without throwing out the idea of freedom and rights. So anyway, I, I'm, there's probably more we could do on that 
that rabbit hole. But I think we're going to hear more about this issue because Congress has to deal with it. And we can either let this idea of conscription of people being forced into government service for the military or for something else, we can either let that just fester and be there and pop up whenever Congress wants it to pop up. Or we can say, no, we're, we're not doing that. We're not giving government that power and, and move on. And it won't change what's happening today in terms of, I think, military. And in some ways, I wish it would more uh, and, and our foreign policy. But it will change, I think, the way that people in public office view our young people. And it might give them the idea that those young people are people and they have a right to do what they want. They're not playthings. They're not playthings for their parents anymore because they're adults and they're sure as heck not playthings for politicians in Washington. Okay, before we go to uh, Bloomberg and his uh, noodle of a campaign, I was wondering about why Jimmy Carter initiated draft registration again after it had been nixed. I thought it was by Nixon. It was, or was it nixed by Ford? I don't remember. But no, Nixon, Nixon in 1973 uh, came out and, and said, we're ending the draft and was a very popular thing to do. But Carter brought it back. You had both the Iranian uh, hostage crisis which I think was later in 79. Earlier in 79, you had the Soviet invasion of, of uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the, the argument, I think, was that we needed it to show strength to the Russians. But, you know, it just always seemed to me to be that it just completely implausible. You're developing this list of people to sign up. And, of course, there's all kinds of resistance to it. Because here you're bringing back the draft. So, I mean, if, you know, the Soviets can have somebody in the country read the newspapers. It's not like, you know, they can't. And, and so it just was so silly as a, as a sign. But, of course, it was a sign that basically, you know, didn't cost a lot of money. Uh, if you're going to build up the military and spend money, that would be more of a problem. And, in essence, it was... Uh, you know, it, it didn't destabilize anything. It was maybe less saber rattling than maybe he thought he could do otherwise. But it was, it, what's interesting to me is that Carter uh, extended, there was some sort of amnesty, and I'm not sure all the with any precision what uh, Ford did with draft resistors. He, I, I think, commuted some sentences and did some sort of amnesty but it was not at all full. And then Carter came in and gave a much fuller amnesty to Vietnam era resistors, which of course upset a lot of the Hawk folks and, and uh, more the military people. Um, although, you know, sometimes that's said, and then I meet military people and, and they don't, they don't, they don't seem to be as gun ho for uh, war as they're sometimes portrayed on TV. Uh, but, but anyway, so for whatever reason, He's on that side, and then, of course, he comes and brings draft registration back. So, you know, he pretty much upset everybody who cared about that issue one way or the other. 
which is probably the reason we think of Carter as a bad president, even if he may not have been that horrible of a president. You know, I, I think Carter was a pretty decent president in terms of he did a lot of deregulation, trucking dere- deregulation, which was a very big thing. Uh, but he upset his own party. He upset the Democratic Party in the Congress. And of course, I think had Ted Kennedy not run against him, you know, you think now and you think, well, geez, this is, you know, Reagan must have beat him like a drum. And Reagan did end up winning, you know, it wasn't super duper close. But there was, I think when when Republicans nominated Reagan, I think there was a lot of media speculation and the, you know, political class and the experts that Reagan was way too radical for the country and would lose. And I think part of what hurt Carter so much is that Ted Kennedy ran against him and and ran against him in many ways as the anti-war, anti-draft candidate. He referred to draft registration as, again, looking to make the young pay for the mistakes of foreign policy committed by the old. And... Uh, I mean, Ted Kennedy sounded as good as he's ever sounded in 1980 to me. I was 20 at the time. And amusingly, uh, the thing I complain about those two the most is that both Kennedy and Carter downplayed their deregulatory efforts. Kennedy was the one who really spearheaded deregulation, and Carter, in his famous Malay speech, really downplayed it. You see that politically, though, uh, many times that that, uh, folks are – getting things done, you know, kind of Nixon's reaching out to China. And I don't think that there was, uh, you know, my, my parents were very conservative and, uh, and I don't remember them being upset about reaching out to China so much, but they were at the time concerned about what does that say to, about Taiwan? Um, and of course I think my parents were, were in the dark about the fact that Taiwan was under martial law and, you know, was, was not, going so well. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek wasn't such a great guy. He wasn't Mao. I mean, he couldn't kill hundreds of millions, but uh, was not a great guy. And, uh, but the worry was what, what happens to the, the free China as opposed to the communist China if we're cutting this deal. And of course, they suspected what ended up being the case, which is that we'll snub the free China for the less free. At least that's the way they saw it at the time. And of course, today, that is so, so true with Taiwan being one of the freest countries in the world, uh, not just in the level of freedom, but in the systems of initiative and referendum and competitive elections between parties and freedom to get on the ballot and everything else. And mainland China, where still never has there been a free and fair election in 4,000 years of history. So um, anyway, that, but I digress. <laughs> well, we can go back to uh, good old uh, Bloomberg then, because on, uh, was it Tuesday, you went to f- head on with uh, that wonderful noodle that he is? Yes, uh, damn noodles. Well, we talked about two Democrats here. We talked about Bloomberg, who is, um, in terms of a competitive standpoint, is competitive. Steyer is not competitive, and he's not going to be with all the billions he's spending. Bloomberg probably would not be with all the billions he's, or millions he's spending, all the billions he has. Bloomberg spending 200 million in the last uh, uh, three months is the biggest spending anybody's done uh, in, in this stage at any time. 
and it, it has an impact. But the point we made, and I think the point that is clear if you look at this situation and if you look at other situations, you know, we, you hear so much about how Citizens United, you know, changed elections and let all this money in and so on. And of course, I'm for letting money in. I want people to be able to speak and I know speech costs money. You want to buy an ad, want to buy a microphone, want to buy a bullhorn, make signs for the rally. It all costs money. The, um, the idea that people are being just moved by 30-second TV spots is, is garbage. It's just not so. And Michael Bloomberg, is, now I'm going to contradict myself, but not really, is moving people with 30-second spots and some 15-second spots. He's all over the internet. He's all over TV, all over the country, as far as I can tell. But he has a message. And in the end, is it enough of a message? I don't know. Maybe not. I hope not. Uh, because we get to Bloomberg later in the week. Uh, and I think some of his behind-the-scenes messages are well, are not good. And we'll get to what they are, but, but Bloomberg's ads are effective. They're smart in that I, I notice they are the type of ads you can run again and again and again. He knows he's saturation bombing the airwaves. So he's not running spots that just grab you because you can't be grabbed that many times before you start to say, is this part of your stop and frisk? I mean, come on, mayor. Um, so, so, you know, he's smart in the way they're doing the ads. The ads are all about him getting the job done. They're very kind of nonpartisan, even though he pushes liberal causes, gun control, and so on. And he's going to provide, I heard on the radio tonight, in, in the car, he is going to provide everyone access to health care. I don't know if he's going to do Medicare for all or just have a check, just a blank check sitting at every receptionist, you know, medical receptionist's office from Bloomberg to just cover it, whatever it is they need that day. So, you know, that's, that's the message that's out there. But he's got a heck of a time winning that, and he has a heck of a time winning the presidency if he does win the Democratic nomination. And Steyer's not, not doing so well, even pounding the airwaves, although his numbers come up a little bit. It has some effect. The bottom line is it's the message. If people connect with that message, he'll win. But you see all the time candidates spending money and going nowhere, and then other candidates not spending nearly as much and going through the roof. And it's when they connect with a message. People think, they may not always think like we do. Obviously, whoever's listening to this right now, they're not as brilliant as we are. But we still have to give them rights, and they make decisions that are, that are generally, I think, better than the politicians would make if we didn't get to weigh in. So uh, all of the campaign finance, I haven't seen any real noticeable difference after Citizens United. Movies don't get censored. That's a difference. I like that one. Uh, corporations can't be attacked left and right without being able to speak but they are not spending a lot of money running ads trying to promote candidates. They're not, um, I don't think they're much more politically active than they were before. And of course, before a lot of these decisions, 
the the charge that was made about Bloomberg and and uh, and Steyer is that they're just buying the elections, and this is what Citizens United is, and all of these changes that the court has made are disastrous. Well, without the changes the court has made that have allowed super PACs to form and others, and all of these disclose, that's another issue, but uh, all these different groupings, and they've allowed people to give more money. But before, Bloomberg and Steyer could have still spent all of their own personal money. And so before some of these changes, Steyer and Bloomberg would have had a bigger leg up because the other people couldn't compete. I pointed out years ago, Ross Perot spent $60 million. He got 19% of the vote for president as a third party independent reform party candidate. He was able to do that because he could spend $60 million and get his message out. Now, it wasn't just because he spent the money. If he had a terrible message, he wouldn't have gotten anything. He had a good message. He might have gotten further had he had party support behind him and a built-in apparatus and everything else. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't vote for him. I voted Libertarian. I, I, there were some things I didn't like about Ross Perot. Um, but he, you know, he was able to spend his money. Now, think about someone who's, you know, Mother Teresa decides to run instead. She moves to, to Dallas. She lives next door to, to Perot. And they're talking at a barbecue one Sunday. And Mother Teresa says, you know, I think I'm going to run. And Perot says, Gee whiz, I mean, I think I'm brilliant economically. I could do so much for the country, but Mother Teresa, she's a saint practically, or maybe is now. Maybe she's, she's gotten that from the church. I don't know. He can't give her more than a tiny bit. Now, because he's a billionaire, he's, he's of course, he passed away not, not too long ago. Uh, rest in peace. He did good things for the country, even though I didn't agree with him on, on many things. Um, but he put his money where his mouth was. I like that. But he couldn't have put his money where Mother Teresa's mouth was. He wouldn't have been able to do it. Now, he could have, he could have formed organizations. He could have hired attorneys. How do I do it? And accountants. And started all new organizations to help Mother Teresa. But he couldn't have given her more than, what is it, $2,600? Or maybe it's 26 and 26. It works out to be $5,200. Uh, and maybe the wife and the husband can, and so it could be more. The bottom line is where the limits still are is on the individual. If you, let's say that you're fairly well-to-do, or let's say you're not that well-to-do, but you're about to retire, and you believe really strongly in this candidate who wants to run for president. So you're not well-to-do, but you have maybe, you've got 200000 in a 401k, and you know, you're 75 years old. So you know, live another 10 years, you got 20000 a year. You know, you're not rich, and you get Social Security, whatever it is. I don't know what, what all the numbers are, but let's just say you're not rich. But you decide, my country matters. My kids and grandkids and their kids and the future of this world our politics stinks, and here is someone I trust and believe in. I want to give him $10,000 or her. You can't do it. Now, with $10,000, you can't hire a team of lawyers and accountants and start all new organizations, and you can't do what Bloomberg could do or Trump or a lot of wealthy people. 
And I'm glad they can do it. I'm not, I'm not for stopping them. I'm just for allowing the person who isn't a millionaire or a billionaire to put their full weight into the campaign finance system. And it really is true that so many of the changes that happen are good. We still have all kinds of problems. The, the problem isn't the money so much. The problem is the power government has. That's what attracts the money. And that's what attracts the under the table dealing. But we have a system where wherever it's been freed up, the one last thing it hasn't been freed up on is what one individual person can give to another individual person that they believe in and take the limits off, take the limits off completely. There's no reason for that to be the case. It's not stopping the billionaire and the millionaire. It's stopping the person below that who wants to make a bigger statement and let them, let people make statements, let people talk with their money and with their mouth and online and everywhere else. And then there's Wednesdays in which Trump calls Bloomberg a racist. This was, this, uh, this is the symbol of our politics, it seems like to me. The other day, and it, it's Mayor Bloomberg writ large, but it's also Mr. Trump writ large. Mr. Trump tweeted, oh my goodness, or something to the effect, wow, Bloomberg, he didn't say, oh my goodness. I guess he doesn't have the, the text lingo down. Wow, Bloomberg is a total racist. And so you're left to wonder, why is Bloomberg a total racist? Well, Bloomberg is a total racist because he favors the same policy that Mr. Trump favors, or at least last he said anything about it. This is about stop and frisk. Stop and frisk is a policy that Mayor Bloomberg had in New York. I believe it was, there was some stop and frisk going on when he became mayor. He upped it very much, then he reduced it some. So if you hear Mayor Bloomberg talk about it, he'll talk about how much he reduced it. He won't mention that he upped it a whole lot. And here's what, um, here's what, before we get into all the little particulars, this is, this is, I think, what everybody needs to hear and consider before they consider voting for Michael Bloomberg. Bloomberg is talking at the Aspen Institute, and this is what he says, quote, 95% of your murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one MO. You can take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 16 to 25. That's where the real crime is. And then the mayor went on to say, and the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them. Now, Bloomberg has since apologized for this. Trump pulled his tweet down. That may be as close to an apology as we get from the president. But the president kind of floated the idea of making this a nationwide policy when he was running in 2016. To me, sometimes when people talk about institutional racism, 
a lot of us recognize there's still racism in the world, but we see a good bit of it among people who have racist ideas and attitudes who might say something racist. We might say, get off my property if you say that. We might do all kinds of things to separate ourselves from those people. We recognize there's some racism out there. That's different than institutional racism. And a lot of times we're dealing with criminal justice issues, which I'm, are very near and dear to my heart. Um, there's a racial component, but I'm quick to tell people, look, don't, don't overstate that racial component. There are white people who are being harassed by police or being killed by police without justification. And let's get the police under control in a way that's not just about race. Now, that's not to diminish that there is a, a factor in there. But institutional racism, if the police are aimed at black young men, not black young men who are doing thus and so, which is a sign they may be involved in this crime or whatever. And even then, is it a sign that they're involved in that crime or are they involved in that crime? Here, Bloomberg has decided, and the officialdom of New York City, but he's, he's where the buck stops, has decided that it is good enough shorthand to say he's young, he's black or Latino, and he's male. And if that's the case, you stop him, you maybe throw him into a wall, you make it to where he doesn't want to even travel this street because he's going to get harassed every time he comes. And boy, if he has a gun, it will reduce the amount of young black males carrying guns because they know I'm going to be hurt. I live in a police state. But the point isn't to turn America into a police state. It's a little bit like when years ago, I remember uh, John Ashcroft became uh, attorney general with George W. Bush. And there's a little short in the paper that he was going to, he was asking for a study on how to get the drugs out of prisons. And it just, it was, it was laughable because the idea that we're going to stop drugs by turning our society into a prison, it doesn't even work. One, our society becomes a prison. That's kind of bad. And two, it doesn't get rid of the drugs. And here is sort of the same thing. We, we don't want to turn our society into a place where young black men or young Latino men or young men of any race or old people of any race or anybody is ever picked because of their race or their age or their genitalia for heaven's sakes. Um, and, and it is, you know, there are certain natural things. Men commit more crimes than women. We've got testosterone. I mean, I'm not for like turning a blind eye to things. And, and the truth is the crime statistics show that you may want to police more in neighborhoods where there are more crimes and they may be more apt to be neighborhoods that are heavily black or heavily Latino or whatever. No one's saying you can't follow through with that. Stop and frisk is something else altogether. Stop and frisk is giving police a license, a Xerox copy of who the criminals may be and what race you need to stop and frisk. Just outrageous. And, and you know, I, 
I think we always believe in second chances and redemption. If he can speak to the issue, I could see people maybe forgiving him for it. He has not spoken to the issue yet. He hasn't come clean. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think he's got to. I think he's got to. But it, I'm not sure he'll face uh, – I'll tell you what, if he's re- running for the Republican nomination, he would face an onslaught in the media like nobody has ever seen. And that is part of the problem we have today in our country, is that if Mayor Bloomberg said those things and was, and he was a Republican at the time, but he's running for the Democratic Party nomination today. If he were running for the Republican Party nomination, I'm convinced the media would be hounding him to come clean and tell all and admit that this was institutionalized racism. And that's exactly what it was. One of the fun things about that issue that uh, you didn't get on on this piece was, uh, you know, conservatives do tend to like it more, you know, stop and frisk than liberals. That's that's traditionally what they've been up to. They're more law and order and, and, um, and also I think more, well, you know, you know, they can tell who's the bad guy. You know, they can tell if they're dressed that way and they act that way. And I, I think they've watched too much TV or something because I think in real life it's really hard to tell who the bad guys are by how they look. But what I find funny is that it's gun control. Uh, conservatives say they're against gun control, but stop and frisk is gun control. That's what gun control looks like. And it was just done on a racial basis or some other, you know, signaling basis. And so it's kind of fun to watch conservatives try to make, make them seem not like contradicting themselves all the time. There is a, a huge issue here. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's part of it is that, in essence, that's, that is gun control. Um, and, and, in Virginia, at the you know these rallies, there was a huge contingent of people who were black and proud to be gun owners, and making the points that, of course, back in I recall in the 1960s, uh, the Black Panthers coming out and demanding that they have their gun rights and and open carrying and stuff. Um, and I, I remember at the time my my uh, dad commenting that you know that is their right. And you can kind of understand why they they want to have that right, um, and we still understand it today. But it's it's there's there's something else about uh, the gun rights here, and it it is in essence kind of a it it is a racial way to have gun control and confiscation without passing a law that admits that you're talking about gun control and gun confiscation. That's absolutely right. It's gun control in a gun control city. Stop and frisk was happening in a city where most of the people can't get guns. Most of the white people don't carry guns. And generally that class of people don't disobey the law. One of the reasons for support for stop and frisk may be that the people who complied with the law are resentful against the people who don't. But if they, if there were no law, there would be really no problem with the people who uh, 
because they would be more cautious. You know, criminals who do carry against the law don't tend to commit crimes when they know that any random person might be carrying as well. Yes. Yes, that's true. And it, it you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing where people hear that and I think their first thought is, oh, we're going to have all these gun battles. But that's not what happens where people have guns. It's that they don't have the battle because there's, there is a, a, a more equivalent levels of force available. And it is absolutely true that you've disarmed these cities so that when the bad guy has a gun, he's got a huge monopoly on force. You know, so that's, I, I think that's a very good point. That's one that we should, we should raise as, uh, as we move forward. We have to come up with something every day, so we'll have to do that. There's another part of it, though, that is controlling the police and preventing them from doing things like this because the Second Amendment is for everybody. And years ago, um, I'm gonna forget his last name, uh, Eugene uh, Robinson, who writes a column, won a Pulitzer Prize, black guy who writes a column for the Washington Post. Way um, left, disagree with him, all kinds of things, but he wrote a column saying that the Second Amendment is for white people. And his argument was, when black people have guns, they get shot dead by police. So there's a real disincentive for a black person to own a gun. And I haven't looked at it statistically and so on, but there's at least an inkling of truth to that. And that's the sort of thing, of course, stopping people from being killed needlessly by police, even if, even if just a, a, as its own right thing to do is a right thing to do. But boy, it is true that long term, you don't get to keep your rights if you're not willing to let everybody have those rights. The whole idea is to let's let everybody be free. That's the best protection for our freedom. And, and boy, on the Second Amendment, we do not want that to be a white-black issue. And, and it is largely, I think, because the black population is more in cities than in rural areas, and the laws disarm honest people in those cities. So, uh, but I think you're also right that there is, there's an element there of white folks saying, it's okay for the police to do this because I'm disarmed and scared. <clears throat> and I, I want you to, uh, and that's boy, that's, that's poison. It's nice though, that we have quite a few, uh, young black intellectuals who are for the second amendment. Now I'm thinking about on YouTube, you'll see Colian Noir and, uh, Antonio Okafor. Both of these people are strong, uh, strong supporters of the second amendment. And I think that we're going to see a big change on that subject. I mean, we saw we saw quite a few African Americans carrying guns in Virginia when that happened. Yes. yes, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Valentine's Day was about Snowden, in a way. Was that your Valentine towards Snowden? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of uh, Edward Snowden, as is Rand Paul, who has been fighting to ask some questions about, and I'm going to get his name wrong. Uh, I guess because I haven't heard his name enough, but the alleged to be the whistleblower, uh, uh, Sierra Mella? 
It might be Chiaramella. I'm not sure. Chiaramella. I think that is right. Um, I've heard it different ways, but it's like you don't hear it very much. But this whole idea is that we need to protect the whistleblower, so we're not going to allow anybody to mention his name. And, of course, Rand Paul, when he asked the question, did not identify this person as a whistleblower, but during the impeachment trial in the Senate, asked the question, uh, and the Chief Justice would not read the question. <clears throat> and it's, it's the sort of thing we're just seeing again and again. And, and this latest case was YouTube deciding that they were going to edit out, not, not uh, allow the video that had Rand Paul on the floor of the Senate mentioning the alleged whistleblower's name. Google has every choice, uh, YouTube, which is owned by Google. They've got every right to not allow that video. But it just strikes me that increasingly we're bumping into this wall where these companies getting very wealthy, which I'm glad, they've produced, they provide a product, but all of a sudden that product, that whole information revolution, the product is information. And if we're not getting the information, there's going to be a different kind of revolution. There's got to be. And I think that's, that's where we're heading. We're going to see, I think, an end to the domination of the Internet by folks like Facebook and Google um, if they continue to think that they can just, you know, uh, basically pick and choose according to their own political bias, and it tends to lean much more left than right, much more Democrat than Republican, it doesn't matter where it leans. If, if, if I have a news service or an information service that is deciding what I need to hear and see and, and read, you know, that, that's not going to work. Um, so this is, this is a, it's a, it's a huge problem not so much because these groups have such power over us because someone can build a different mousetrap, a different, you know, search engine, different things to compete. And we can move as customers very quickly. Um, I don't think that their domination of the market is so great that we can't overcome it. It's more that I think we have a media that largely wants speech controlled and not in not in quite the ways that the Chinese censors would control speech in less authoritarian totalitarian ways but of course even as I say that the reality is if we take a couple steps down the road of controlling speech giving a narrative to the people that's you know, that maybe makes a couple of assumptions in case the people get things wrong. We know where that leads. And it does lead to totalitarian China. It does lead to Orwell's 1984. It's, you know, this is, this is serious stuff. And, it's, and if it were just government, it'd be easier to stop it in some ways because we could say that this is censorship. People would understand it quicker. Uh, it, and, and of course they'd be mad at government, you know, government because they're not getting all the, all the bennies we get in the information age and in the internet revolution. So this is a, this is a thorny 
problem. Um, and it's, it, it's the kind of thing where you see such a difference, you know, in, in our free societies, but you see that movement and, and the, the people, I know a lot of people who talk about Trump as a dictator and, and we have a fascist as president and we've become a fascist country and, and hyperbole that I don't think is quite accurate. But sometimes it's triggered by, you know, a, a love of, of authoritarianism. I think Trump drives me crazy when he says things, you know, nice things about the butchers of Beijing. There's nothing nice to say about him. Um, and, and I see kind of the same sort of, you know, not the same sort of attention paid by the media to a society in which, well, because they're, they're doing the narratives that increasingly, and we talked about this, Tim, where we, we're told, we read a story in the paper, and we're told all kinds of facts about it, but numerous questions we have are nowhere addressed. One side seems to not really be in the debate much, except as a straw man, um, and we're given more narrative and little tidbits to fit our narrative, then we're given the facts and asked to come to our own conclusion. And increasingly, and it's not just AI, you know, artificial intelligence, we live in a world in which people would like to do our thinking for us. And, you know, it, it, free speech, without free speech, you can't, you can't persuade other people. It's why you, you go to the wall for free speech. And, uh, you know, if you can't think, everything you hear is, you know, not the full, the full truth. And, and of course, none of it's going to be the full truth. It's why you have to have all the voices, because you have to pick and choose, and you have to have that choice of being able to get more than one source. So this is, uh, this is more of, of a really troubling private public partnership of sorts. Every time I see Facebook uh, or Google testifying before Congress, uh, I'm absolutely frightened. I'm frightened by Tucker Carlson on the right, I'm pointing to my left, but you know, who's, who wants to control Google, and I'm concerned about Elizabeth Warren on the left. I'm going to point to my right, just to be even. And, uh, and you know, both of them want to control Google. I want to wake people up to Google and others. I want to make sure there's no subsidies from the government going to them. But we as, as citizens, we've got the same problem here in the marketplace where our problems are usually less in, in this way that we do in, in, uh, in, in government. Government has been monopolized. We're not getting a lot of choice. I think the internet has been monopolized and we're not getting a lot of choice. And, and what we do may be different. One's government action and one may be more private action, but we want to live in a society where we get to think and make decisions for our own lives. And that involves both smart private actions as well as smart public actions. On a nice bright note, uh, you still could see the suppressed video, so to speak, on C-SPAN. And yeah. it was talked about by Tim Poole on YouTube, the very platform that took it down. Uh, so it was known. And, of course, 
right in that this is commonsense.com it was linked to so there you know there are other recourses that people have and uh, that's a good thing it is it is it's it's uh you know we live in a wonderful time we just have to take charge of it and, and you see around the world you know when when social media first got going all the possibilities you know that we could communicate with each other and then as it's been going more you know we have uh you know in, in india where they've shut down the internet for you know months uh, uh china where they control all kinds of things and we have our own spying and and one of the things that we really didn't get into tim which we should stop because we've probably gone long enough but uh you mentioned edward snowden and and we had you know talked about some of these things uh one of the points that i thought Rand paul made so well was you folks in in congress uh, seem to want to choose which whistleblowers if you like how their their whistle sounded when they blew it then they get all kinds of protections but if it ruffled some feathers like Edward Snowden and showed that the government was committing massive crimes against our Fourth Amendment rights, um, well, all of a sudden this guy needs to be put to death. He could be executed under the charges they brought against him or be exiled forever or put in prison for life. And like Rand Paul, I support uh, the whistleblower, uh, Edward Snowden. I would... I I tell you any any presidential candidate who would give him a pardon that would make a ton of difference in in getting my vote and the reason is simple Edward Snowden did me a favor at the at his own risk he gave me information about my government that I think is just absolutely essential to know that they are massively violating our rights and that's not just Edward Snowden who said that. A federal judge said that. The government admits it was violating our rights. This is, and yet he's, he's exiled. Um, and this is bipartisan. Barack Obama wanted to stick it to Edward Snowden. Hillary Clinton wanted to stick it to Edward Snowden. Donald Trump wants to stick it to Edward Snowden. The public is his only hope to get back to America. And like any other person, he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life stuck in Russia. He wants to come back. We need to, we need to keep that memory alive and, uh, and say, thank you. In fact, we have posters. People can go to uh, thisiscommonsense.com and get your Edward Snowden, thank you for your service poster. Only $10. Even it includes shipping and handling. Rand Paul called Edward Snowden the greatest whistleblower of all time, and I think that's right. We can refer to him as a hero, but he's really just a guy who did us a favor, and we ought to say thank you. And thank you to the listeners and viewers for This Week in Common Sense. Please uh, visit us at thisiscommonsense.com on weekdays and on YouTube and SoundCloud on the weekend.